Hey folks, Matt here. Uh, during the recording of this show, I somehow managed to not have my microphone turned on. So uh, the good news is that the built-in mics on my computer did pick up what I was saying for the most part. The bad news is that is not the normal audio quality we try to bring you on the show. So uh, I apologize for that. Uh, my audio is not going to sound super great on this episode. Uh, Lee and Jed's is totally fine. Um, so going to get that fixed. Oh, it's almost exciting that after almost 600 episodes, this is the first time this has happened. So that's that's fun. There's still new and magical things you can find in the universe when it comes to me screwing things up. Uh, but I do apologize for that. But I hope you enjoy the show anyway. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Say That Podcast for your big questions, your real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host in City Chicago. Joining us here is Jeff Brewer. Hello! With us all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, as we younger. You guys don't know this, but the positivity we start the show with comes right on the heels of the negativity that we all share with each other about our recording setups before we start the show. That's true. That's true. It's, you know, it's like a balancing of the humors. Which may be a foreshadowing of things to come ah. in this episode. It might be. It might just be, Jed. That's right. Or maybe not. Finally, all of those. I forgot what those film studies is. classes are coming in useful. <laughs> well, the engineering major on the show has brought up foreshadowing, so I think at some point that means Lee and I are going to have to do math, and this is going to be a very <laughs> uncomfortable podcast for all of us. But that's right. I can I can say the podcast. word lever. Does that account for hey, anything? Hey. You're off to a strong start, man. You're off to a strong start. And in a sense, that also is going to link back in that it comes from a similar school of thought. Ooh. One of these simple machines, the primitive machines, and ancient machines, (laughs) if you will. So before we get into your fine questions, we have a humorous emergency. An ancient Greek emergency. (laughs) Well, hopefully. Well done, sir. Well done. Yes, indeed. So we've got... um, for those of you who don't live in the United States, uh, good for you. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, we, we recently had a whole kerfuffle where there's a physician in Congress. It's basically the, the leader of one of the, the lower house of Congress called the Speaker of the House. And uh, the party that the guy was part of decided you're not crazy enough, so we want you out. Um, just for funsies, basically. And so he got voted out. They're like, we're going to pick this new guy. And people were like, that guy oversaw a lot of sexual assault in the previous job he had. And they were like, we don't think people care about that. And they didn't care about that. They didn't vote for him anyway. So that was the whole thing. And they're like, what about this other guy? And they're like, eh, he's crazy, but is he crazy enough? So on and on and down we go until we got to uh, somebody who was insane enough for the uh, House Republican caucus in the United States. And you wonder what manner of person is this? And you know he's an evangelical Christian, but but what manner of? And I give you this headline from Yahoo.com. Kelly Johnson, who is married to House Speaker Mike Johnson, practices a form of Christian counseling that classifies people into choleric, phlegmatic, and other ancient personality types purportedly ordained <laughs> by God. <laughs> cool. Wow. Cool, cool, cool. So um, Kelly Johnson, wife of newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson, ran a Christian counseling service. So, and, you know, you think, well, they're probably 
you know, into conversion therapy and all manner of horrible, outdated things. And of course they were. But not only that. But wait, there's more. There is more. They were also <laughs> into practices built on the teachings of the Greek physician Hippocrates. Cool. Oh, cool. So not really built on the Greek physician Hippocrates, by the way. Uh, built on uh, the teachings of two people named Richard and Phyllis Arno, who established a test to identify people's temperament and founded the National Christian Counselors Association in the early 1980s. Right on. They and the advocates right refer the term temperament over personalities, as the term personality is characterized as a, quote, mask, while temperaments are, quote, inborn and thus inherent to each individual regardless of outside influences such as parenting. The work is largely based on Hippocrates' view that there were four temperaments, except that they also added their own. Ah. Oh. So if you're familiar, It's the remix, dude. It's the remix. Yeah. If you're familiar with the concept of the four humors at all, um, you're probably familiar with it through the idea of the medieval practice of bleeding people because they were too sanguine. Yeah. Yeah. Bro, hook me up with some leeches, man. They had too much blood. <laughs> you may be familiar with the terms of hot-blooded and whatnot. That was the best thing they were going on in the 13th century. I got an idea. Let's take that life stuff out of your body. That'll probably help. Yeah. These people, man, we, we bled all the blood out of man. He died. Well. We did the best we can. This is hey, I'm I'm no kind of medical anything, but I'm pretty sure like one of the big takeaways from Hippocrates was the idea of first do no harm. And I gotta be honest, I don't I don't know if we're quite living up to that credo, y'all. This is literally how President McKinley died. Yeah. Like everything was fine, and they literally bled him to death. <laughs> My gosh, man. I I am imagining I'm just, you know, I, I have both I've I've worked with a lot of mental health professionals who are amazing people and and I have been the recipient of some wonderful uh, counseling in my life and I'm I'm just imagining sitting down with my therapist and her saying, "Jed, how was your week? You know, and how are things? How do you feel about bleeding for the next hour?" <laughs> just want to put that out there and just see how you feel about that. Like that that would be quite the conversation to have. Yeah, the, the people who my mind turns to in this moment, and we all know uh, several great ones, are, are Christian people who are also mental health professionals, who have uh. the, the certifications and the training and the scientific uh, basis and are just kind-hearted people who want to help through counseling, through social work, through maybe through the medical sciences. And just happen to be people of faith and let it inform that. And how much effort they must put into, in certain circumstances, convincing people that they're not this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on a website uh, breaking down the temperament analysis by the Arno Profile System. Okay. <clears throat> the Arno Profile System is a clinical diagnostic tool. I'm going to quibble with all three of those words, I think. <laughs> used by the National Christian Counselors Association to assess a person's God-given temperament. It is extremely valuable in helping the client better understand themselves and also for the counselor to be more effective with each person. 
1983, uh, Arn the Arnest conducted research and developed a scripturally based therapeutic procedure. Again, that's four words. Scripturally based and therapeutic procedure that I'm going to uh, say probably not. That would produce effective, positive, and more immediate results with those needing guidance and counsel. The Arnest worked with more than 5,000 individuals. They were persons who sought counseling for depression, interpersonal conflict, marriage and family dysfunction, and anxiety. The purpose of this research was to develop an accurate clinical testing procedure for initial identification of the counselor's inborn, God-given tendencies and temperaments. Cool. There cool. are four, uh, traditionally, there have been four temperaments. Melancholy, sanguine, choleric, and phlegmatic. Mm. Dr. Okay. Arso, Dr. Arno also identified another temperament. The fifth temperament is called the supine. Ah. The identification area describes a person who is a servant and feels that he or she has little or no value. So you are working, presumably, with a bunch of people who were raised Baptist in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you thought, hmm, a lot of these people seem to feel that they have no value. Maybe they've been told that over and over again, relentlessly, since they were small children. It's probably their humor that are the issue. <laughs> I don't also, know, I just want to... Just uniquely American evangelical about, well, we looked at the teachings of Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. We're going back to the basics. We're going back to foundation of all things. But also, we added our own little twist in there. We added a fifth one. Sure, absolutely. There is, if you've ever seen like one of those like a Myers-Briggs or a, what's the one with the one to nine and the... The Enneagram. Oh, there yeah. you go. There it is. And they've all got, you know, their little pie, they're all, their little chart and how you, this one is more like that. This has a truly bonkers nine by nine grid. Ah. Where you can be uh, supine compulsive, sanguinous compulsive, sanguine. Uh, choleric compulsive, melancholy compulsive, and then phlegmatic appears to be like the free square in bingo. Okay. Okay. Right very there good. in the middle, which would, I think would imply that phlegmatic is the best one to be, which is a bit odd. Sure. And um, so uh, outside of the horror that this is the apparent belief system of someone who is the uh, third in line to be president of the United States, um, I think this begs the question of what other um, kind of pre-enlightenment ideas could we bring back in order to root Christians into doing stuff? Sure. Yeah. The one thing I would I would I would put forth, and it's an idea we have talked about in, in kind of certain aspects on this show before. So, you know, Hippocrates obviously a great, great thinker and all, but you may not be aware that the uh, the philosopher Plato, who you've probably heard of, he was he was you know a, a air, member of the academy and you know heir to Aristotle and whatnot. He was very also, well known for his children's play toy. That's kind of like a, a moldable substance. You can make a lot of things out of it. That's right. Ironic for someone who is mostly memorialized in stone statue. Yeah, Plato <laughs> yeah. Was, was there. Yeah. A, another thing he was he was known for is being Possibly the greatest uh, Greek wrestler alive at the time. Nice. Dude, for real? Yeah, his name isn't Plato, 
Plato is literally a nickname that essentially means big fella. Nice. <laughs> uh, on Wikipedia, uh, Plato is a pen name apparently given to him by his wrestling coach in a reference to, and I quote from Wikipedia directly, his physical girth. Wow. My, my dad, my dad would have called to, him Hoss Man. Yes. <laughs> and he was apparently known at times to, if someone was uh, arguing with him in the philosophical ways, to just uh, uh, suplex them into his position. Wow. And again, if we're picking up things from the ancient world, I think we, I think I like this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm all about it, man. This is great. I, I wonder. Overlap <laughs> of a double leg takedown with a, uh, <laughs> you know, a more traditional rhetorical takedown. I just, <laughs> all I want to hear now is Matt's version of a Plato, um, like wrestling promo to the Arnos <laughs> about their misuse of the humors. I mean, oh I th- yeah, I think that could be a really, really helpful thing. It's just like a, a full on like Plato grabs the microphone, grabs the cameraman, sticks himself in front of the camera, and lets the Arnos have it. Okay, I gotta, I gotta. Man, okay, I'm, I'm trying to put up these. So Hippocrates died in 380 BC. This so is so Plato good. Predated him on some level. I'm trying to trying to get get the idea of the other. No, Plato died after. I'm trying to figure out who. So he's big. It would it would be kind of a Hulkamania brother, I think. Okay. Or okay. It would, you know, he'd be more of an Andre the Giant. Oh, oh. until they did what he wanted. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, just a very small kind of. Oh, well, you know what it would be. So, uh, in the very much uh, sense of an Austin three sixteen, you come in here and you talk about your humors and you talk about your phlegmatic and you talk about your sanguine. I'm going to make you sanguine when I when I suplex you off the top rope. <laughs> <laughs> You talk about supine. I'm going to make you supine when you're stared up the yeah. light for the one, two, three. Yes, yeah. dude. Yes. I didn't do a voice because I didn't want to impersonate a Greek person. In the great <laughs> tradition of professional wrestling, it would probably be like just some random dude from Indiana where they were like, he's the great Plato. Like, looks like his name is Ron. Shut up. He's the great Plato. <laughs> Matt, in terms of you know, just checking things historically, do we know when the metal folding chair was invented? I mean, I, I think we won't have so much archaeological evidence, but. Because I, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like Plato could swing a mean metal folding chair. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like given the his time, he would be swinging some kind of uh, stones column. Yeah, you'd really want to take it. You'd really want to duck on that one, brother. <laughs> yeah, or like you know, like some kind of writing tablets. Yeah, there you go. I think I think one could assume that anything after the Bronze Age, and I don't want to get technical here, but a a metal folding chair would be possible. I totally agree. We don't have proof of not that exactly. <laughs> We're going to move on to your fine questions. If you have a question for us, you can have us all the way to the end. All these ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down in your episode description. Click the links you find there. 
First question this week comes in and says, I feel like life is extremely unfair. Not necessarily to me, I've had it pretty easy on and all, but in general, this is proving to be a big sticking point when I think about life and God. How do I deal with this? And I think it's, it's a great question. It's definitely the kind of thought that everyone deals with at some point in their faith journey, uh, once, if not in a recurring fashion. And Lee, where do we start off here? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, it's, I, I want to, I want to say to you that it's, it's really cool for you to look out beyond yourself and say, it's not that I'm having a terrible time. It's that I'm looking around and realizing that other people are having a hard time. That's a cool thing because not everybody thinks that way and not everybody looks out beyond their own experience. You know, you're looking at your own life and going, I think it's, it, you know, my situation's going okay. I mean, everything's not perfect, but in general, I'm doing pretty good. However, I do see a lot of uh, confusion and, and suffering and pain in the world, and that is causing me to struggle with the concept of God. Um, that is a really cool thing to bring up. It is ex- an extremely normal thing to feel. Um, and, and I tell you that because sometimes people can feel like, well, uh, as a Christian, maybe I'm not allowed to ask these questions. You absolutely are. You're encouraged to bring your honesty to God. And we definitely on this show want people to bring their honesty and their questions and all and their confusion and everything. What I would say is um, I'm, I'm glad for you that, that things have been kind of feeling downhill for you, that things have been feeling good and, um, and positive. My, my kind of warning off the back of back end of that though, is um, keep on living, man. My experience um, has been that no one escapes loss and pain, difficulty and unfairness in this world. It's a really crappy world in a lot of ways. There's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of coolness. There's a lot of depth and there's a lot of sweetness, but there is a lot of pain and injustice, wrong and struggle in this world. I, I don't say that to bring you down. I say that to be honest with you and to let you know that as, as somebody who follows Jesus and, and looks to the, the scriptures as an authority on how to see the world and how to understand my relationship with God, I can tell you that the, the, the story of the scriptures is this, is a, this, this world is, is a busted prospect. It's a disastrous place. There's a lot of wrong in it. There's a lot of evil. A lot of people have made terrible choices and continue to do so in ways that affect other people in really, really awful ways. You cannot expect, nor does God promise, that there is some version of this world where you're not going to suffer. If you live enough decades, you're going to experience some confusion, some pain, some tears some loss, some frustration, and some injustice. That's the way this world works right now. Um, God doesn't promise it's going to be any different. The ringer on this is, is that God does promise something in the midst of that, which is that God does promise you will not have to face any of that alone. I'm going to put people in your life. I'm going to put um, opportunities for you to have fellowship and community with folks who can walk alongside you. And God promises that he himself will be 
with you, to aid you, to give you wisdom, to give you help, to give you uh, courage and strength, to give you patience and peace, things that you are not supposed to be able to conjure up in yourself, to give you joy, to give you love. Um, you know, we, we typically, well, I, I say we typically, sometimes you hear people talk about this idea that like, yes, we get grace from the Lord for free. But all the things that we're supposed to do for ourselves is we're supposed to muster up our own faith. We're supposed to muster up our own love. There's this really, really cool verse in, um, I believe it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, I think it's verse 14 or so, um, where Paul says that grace was given to him as well as the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We know that grace comes as a gift. That's the nature of grace. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't buy it. But faith and love both come as a gift as well. God wants to give you things in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of, in the midst of pain and difficulty and all that stuff, in the midst of unfairness, to help you cope, to help you walk through those things, and sometimes even to help you understand it. The thing that, uh, again, just to kind of recover this whole thing. It's really, really cool of you to think about others when you yourself are not experiencing a ton of unfairness right now. Um, the thing that you need to understand is you may, um, this world, Jesus said, is going to be full of trouble. Um, but he promises to be with you. He promises to overcome trouble in the end. And, um, he promises to give things to you to help you cope and to make your way through it. And he promises to make those things available to other folks who are experiencing the unfairness, the confusion, the pain, the suffering, and all of those problems as well. Again, really sharp question, really cool of you to look beyond your own experience and circumstance and to care about the unfairness that other people are walking through. God wants to walk through those things alongside us. It's a fantastic place to start things off. And Jed, where we pick that up? No, that's great stuff. And and I agree with Lee. It's a really, really good question. Um, unfairness is a form of suffering. Um, and trying to figure out how to think about suffering, what, how to conceive of it, how to respond to it. Honestly, I think that is kind of one of the key goals of almost any form of philosophy and any religion. It's just what what do we do with the problem of pain? What do we do with the idea of, of suffering? And Lee has already said it, but it bears repeating that the Bible's answer in regards to suffering, and this is true in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament both, is both very simple and also very profound, which is, I am with you. When people ask, what about suffering and what's the deal and you know what's going on? God's answer is, I am with you. Um, to dig very slightly deeper, the answer is that God will not exempt anyone, himself included, from the experience of suffering. Yeah. Everybody suffers, including the person of God, but that God will be with them in the midst of it. Here's the one thing that I would kind of add to, to what Lee said. One of the, the distinctives of Christianity is that you are specifically called to be, the way the Bible puts it, is an ambassador of Christ Jesus. And the thing about being an ambassador in, in any setting is that your job is to kind of further the policies of the ruler that you work for. 
there's a there's a ruler who's who's in charge and you work for that ruler and your your job is to further their policies which means that if the policy of god is yes there is suffering i will be with you in the midst of it what does it mean for you to be with others in the midst of their suffering what does it mean for you to practice being present for people in the midst of their suffering there is not one answer to that question um, and it is, there is certainly no one size fits all um, answer to that question. But but I do want to offer a couple of quick thoughts for you to think about. Um, pain reduction is great. Where we can do that, that's awesome. Um, solving logistical needs is great. It's awesome. Where we can do that, we we want to do that. But those are not the same as simply being present with people in the midst of their suffering. And um, one of the limits of human ability, and again, reducing pain is good, um, undoing kind of the, the bad logistical stuff is, is good, but none of us have the ability to erase the bad things that have happened. That's one of the, the great existential difficulties of being a human being is that not only will bad things happen, but that this side of eternity, there's no erasing them. Um, it's been said and rightly so that if your house burns down and we build you a new one, your house still burned down. Mm. This, this awful thing still occurred in your life. And, and even if, you know, the insurance company steps in and it's all put to right and whatnot, that doesn't erase losing your home. That that's not, that's just not how that works. We've all hopefully not too, too many of us have experienced the following in our own lives, but we, we've certainly seen it in movies and whatnot. You think about that moment where, you know, a doctor has to give awful news and they say the line, there's nothing more we can do. But the thing that I, I want to ask is what would it be like if a doctor said that and then just simply sat with you? Mm. That never, ever happens in an American hospital, and there's a million reasons for it, but I think it might be transformative if it did. Because the truth is, when you think of your friends, when you think of your loved ones, when you think of the people that you know that are going through a hard time, at a certain point, and actually often fairly quickly, you're going to run into the point of there is nothing more that you as a human being can do. Yeah. You don't, you don't have further resources to fix these logistical problems. You don't have further stuff that can just you know wipe away the pain. The only thing that you have to offer is to sit and be present with them. And then in point of fact, Actually, that is what an ambassador of Christ Jesus should be doing, because that is the offer that God makes to each of us is there will be times that are very hard. I will be with you in the midst of them. Nice. Yeah. It does. In my experience, that doesn't erase suffering. Again, this side of eternity, nothing erases suffering, but it does transform suffering. Um, there is a huge difference between going through a hard time and going through a hard time alone. I've done both. I can tell you for my money, I would always rather go through a hard time with a friend there with me than go through it alone. I think that's true for basically everyone. And that is something that you can offer to the people in your life, no matter the details of the unfairness that they might be facing. Beautifully put by both these guys. A lot of excellent stuff on that. And with that, we're going to move on to our next question here. It comes in and says... Sometimes my friends talk about believing in something bigger or a higher power. That's kind of frustrating to me because I think they're trying to say that that is the same as my belief in Christ. But I think it's different because I know what I believe in. 
Am I wrong to be bothered by that? Yeah, I, I think um, the first thing I would say is, I don't know if if it's the right question to say, am I wrong for feeling this thing? Um, because we need to be clear, you're going to feel things sometimes, man. And you're not always going to be the arbiter of the thing you're feeling. The, a more appropriate question <clears throat> might be, I feel this thing strongly. What do I do next? And that's an important thing because sometimes you're just going to feel some stuff. Uh, somebody's going to act weird or say a thing and you're going to feel some stuff. So what do we do next? You feel kind of offended because you have a certainty about your belief in Christ and somebody has this thing where they're, you feel like they're kind of watering it down or they're not showing it the right respect or whatever the thing is. Uh, my thing would be like, okay, um, I need to, I, you know, I'm going to acknowledge that I feel this thing, but my next step is going to be to treat that person with as much patience and generosity as I can possibly muster and just relax. I don't have to win an argument. I don't have to fight this person. I don't have to prove myself or come up with, um, you know, the linchpin argument that's going to make someone say, well, since you put it that way, I guess I have to become a Christian because you've solved it. You have literally closed every loophole, and now I see that Christ is the Messiah of God. Um, not typically the way that anybody comes to know Jesus, not typically the way that anybody decides to follow him. In my experience, when people decide that they're going to throw their lot in with Jesus, it's because somebody loved them, and they were having a hard time, and they found in someone else the kind of acceptance, generosity, patience, kindness, hope, and love that they had not seen in anybody else. You are not, if you can, if you can calibrate or set your dial here, you do not need to make it your aim in every conversation that you have with anybody to make them see the world the way you see it. Rather, make it your goal to care about people to love people, to listen to them, and to understand them. That kind of behavior, that kind of treatment, that kind of friendship wins people to a life with Jesus way more often than having all the answers figured out and having the argument locked down or whatever, whatever. Um, I've Right now, I've got um, a, a situation in my life where I've got a group of guys. Um, I, I do I do outreach to to young people at the local high school in my town, and I've got a group of guys that come over once a week to my house to have lunch at my uh, dining room table. And the goal of that time is to bring up some conversations and ask some questions that high school guys don't typically talk about or think about. And we sometimes look at some scriptures and we talk about the Lord. And what's amazing is uh, a lot of the time we just talk. We just talk about their lives. We talk about the game they're going to play or the practices they've had or the school, the classes that they've attended or, or you know, the, the dating relationships that they're trying to figure out, all those kinds of things. And what I've found is 
that just being the kind of person who is a generous listener, who asks intentional questions that demonstrate that you care about somebody else, that is going to land me in conversations that I want to be in about someone's faith and about where somebody is with the Lord and with the good news of Jesus or whatever, way faster than, you know, uh, you know, putting somebody on their back foot with an argument or whatever, whatever. So my advice to you would be, um, as far as, you know, looking at the thing you're feeling, don't judge the thing you're feeling necessarily, but ask yourself, what's my next step? I feel a thing. I feel a little offended. What's my next step? My next step is to be the most generous and kind listener who asks the most intentional questions and serves and meets the needs of this person so that when the time is right and they find themselves in a place of need, I'm the person they come to to look for some hope, to look for something, um, to, to figure out what a relationship with God might actually look like. And Jed, what would, we, what would we have to add to that? No, that's definitely great stuff. So one of the most important pieces of advice in life that anyone can abide by, and this will, uh, there are very few things that will make everything in your life better. This one will. The line is, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Let me say it again. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. With that in mind, I want to offer to you what the perspective of your friends might be. And I also want to offer maybe a little bit of, of thought about kind of the, the broader perspective of society as a whole. So I think both are important for you to be aware of. I don't know your situation. I don't know how old you are. I don't know kind of where these friends are from or, or how you know them. But, um, you know, uh, I, I'm going to guess that you may be in your, you know, your late 20s or your early 30s and you work some kind of a job and these are just people that you you happen to know in in life, right? So what might their standpoint be? What might their perspective be in the spirit of seeking to understand them? It's just a guess, but from their standpoint, my guess is that they feel like, well, we we each all have, you know, kind of some form of spiritual belief, and it's it's generally focused on some kind of higher power. And and that gives us, you know, some degree of of comfort and grounding in our lives. And that's a good thing. Those are good things. None of us have all the answers because literally no one anywhere has all the answers about anything. And that's okay. We're not, we're not really expecting anybody to have, to have the answers. And we know that, that Steve over there is, you know, a particularly religious guy and, and that's cool. But, you know, um, you know, being really, really into football you're, you're still a sports fan, the same that I am because I casually enjoy basketball. So we, we've all got things that we, that we like and it's, and it's fine. So let's pause there for a second. I think that's certainly in the realm of realistic of probably the, the way that your, your friends are looking at things. And I think we might want to pause and acknowledge there's nothing wrong with any of that. There's, there's not, from a, from their standpoint, there's actually not anything exactly, exactly inaccurate about it either. Um, at the very least, that perspective definitely, definitely makes sense. And I think one of the difficulties that you might be facing if you grew up evangelical is that you were raised in a subculture that tells you that you do have all the answers. Yeah. And not only that you do have all the answers, but that you have a, a duty to convince 
others of that. And that's going to cause us some problems because one of the perspectives that your friends doubtlessly have, and they, they have it probably because it's true, is matters of faith are unprovable. By their very definition, all matters of faith are just that. They're not facts. They are assertions that at their fundamental level are, are mystical. They, they can't be proven. And so you've been kind of convinced by the subculture that you grew up in that you have to almost create like a contest between your unprovable ideas and their unprovable ideas. And if you can dig it again, from the perspective of your friends, that's a lot like trying to convince them that objectively your favorite sports team is better than their favorite sports team. That's weird. Um, you, you, I think if you think about it, you could, you could kind of understand why people would not like that and would not be fans of that. But now let's expand it out a little bit. Cause I think it's really important to pay attention to the, the time in which you are alive and having these conversations if you live in the United States of America, it's important to be aware that people who call themselves Christians have created the most atrocious reputation for themselves that I can possibly imagine. Like, it's real, 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 real bad. We were joking about it at the start of this episode, but it's super, super bad. I sound calm about it. I am not. It is super, super bad. I want to read you a story because it's actually relevant to your friends and it's relevant to this moment in society. So um, when the conquistadors came to the Americas in the early 1500s, one of the islands that they, they came to was Cuba. And there was an indigenous leader there who's now a national hero in Cuba, but um, his name was Hatui. And um, they decided that they were going to burn him at the stake because, of course, that's totally how you show Christian love. So. Before he was burned, um, a, a Christian priest asked Hatui if he would accept Jesus and go to heaven. And Hatui, who was, who was a, an indigenous leader, he thought about it a little, and he asked the priest, these conquistadors that are here with you, do, do they go to heaven? And the priest answered, well, well yes, of, of course they do. They're, they're Christians, so they, so they go to heaven. So then the chief, with, with no further thought, immediately said, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell because then I won't have to be around such cruel people. Wow. I want you to think about that for a second and be aware that there are an awful lot of people, very understandably, at the very least in the United States right now, whose perspective is folks who call themselves Christian are so mean and angry and bigoted and unkind and just awful that whatever isn't that is the thing that I want to be on. If God is the way that their behavior depicts, I want to be where God is not. I would encourage you to think about that because that's a profound idea. And it's not a new idea, unfortunately. There is one way and only one way to get around that. It's humility. That's the only way that you get around that humility, humility practiced consistently over a very, very long period of time. Humility that translates into simply serving others in love without expecting anything in return. It's humility. 
That's the one and only point of leverage that you have. And the good news is that's actually one of the key tenets of your faith is humility. If you practice that humility, your friends will notice and they will know that there is something different in your life than than in most people. If you don't practice that humility, you are arguing about sports teams. And it's important to be aware that not only are you arguing about sports teams, but you are trying to convince them to like a sports team with an epically terrible reputation. Okay, with that said, we're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, I normally don't care much about end time stuff, but I was reading 2 Timothy 3 recently, and it was describing things that sounded pretty similar to today. Can you help me be less freaked out? Well, I, I, I turned to 2 Timothy 3, and just as we're getting all on the, on the same page here, for those who believe, says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Now, I don't watch a lot of television news, but I do occasionally see it across my social media feeds. And uh, oh. Lee, I got to say, a lot of stuff's ringing a bell here. So where do we start with those? Yeah. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is super interesting. I'll tell you, uh, I'm going to take this in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, it feels like one of those cooking shows. Potatoes in three ways. <laughs> nice. Um, a couple of ways. Number one. He's going to throw salt on your question at some point. Just, just a <laughs> nice pinch. Here's the, here's the really humongous bummer. And we're going to go back to where a place where Jed took us in the last response, which was the reputation of the people who call themselves Christians, particularly in the West. Um, this paragraph seems to describe them, and that's bad. Yep. Uh-oh. Um, the the Christ described his own personality and self exactly once, and he said, "I am gentle and humble in heart." That was it. Gentle is a word that means sweet. It's a in the original language, it was a word that um, that that was sometimes used to to talk about medicine that goes down easy rather than being brackish and harsh, or a soft breeze as opposed to like a biting winter chill, which is what Jed and Matt experience when they walk outside their houses. Yup, in the frozen hellscape in which they live, um, that is the word that the Christ used to describe himself. The people that follow Christ are not only supposed to follow him, but to be like him. That's the whole idea of being called a Christian, is that you're supposed to be like Christ. And yet, if you're to ask a random person, um, a non-believer who's paying any attention at all, what are the Christians like? They might tell you, man, they're boastful, they're proud, they're abusive, they're ungrateful, without love, slanderous. Um, rash, conceited. These are these are horrible words that, unfortunately, could be very easily used 
to describe people who declare themselves to be Christians. Not only that, these words could be described, uh, could be used to describe people who declare themselves Christians with receipts. We can just pull up the tweets. I mean, the, the receipts are plenteous. They're everywhere. You can just play the film. Uh, the people that are calling themselves Christian and, and purport themselves to be Christian leaders are rash and conceited, without self-control, ungrateful, um, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive. Th- these, these are, this is bad stuff. Um, somehow we have gotten ourselves into a position where people who are carrying the banner for Christians are just out there being the people that are in this paragraph. So you're right. It's not, it's not good. It doesn't look good out there. This is not the way uh, we're supposed to live and talk and treat people. If we're carrying the banner for Christ, here's the other thing. So here's, here's the second way I want to take this. Um, you're right. The world is like this. Sometimes it's Christians. Sometimes it's, un, it's, it's non-Christians, but there's a lot of unlove. There's a lot of un- injustice. There's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of messed up stuff happening right now. A lot of slander, a lot of conceit, a lot of power grabbing, a, just a lot of unlove. Um, and so the other way I want to take this is if you are walking with Jesus, if you're following him, I don't want you to be freaked out about the end of the world. The, the the number one thing that we need to take away from this is the people of Jesus should not be described by the, the, the words in this paragraph. But let's set that aside for a second and talk about the end of the world just for a second. I don't want you to be freaked out about the end of the world. Um, one of the things that's funny about kind of movies and, and prestige television and stuff like that is um, what has happened in the kind of modern mindset. Uh, when we say or hear the word apocalyptic or apocalypse, we think that means the end of the world, a nuclear apocalypse where nothing can live except for Will Smith and a dog. <laughs> and <clears throat> like, and you know, everybody else is like underground or has been taken over by robots or something, I, you know, w- whatever. Um, but the, so the ap- apocalypse is actually a Greek word. Um, when, uh, the, the book of revelation in your English Bible, if you, if you, if English is your first language, you use an English Bible, the book of revelation, that is a Greek or that is a, that is a Roman translation of a Greek word. The Greek word for that book of the Bible is the apocalypse. Um, and that is just a word that means to draw back a curtain. That's all that word means. It just means to draw back a curtain. It's about revealing something. And it was written by uh, one of the 12 disciples, uh, John, who also wrote the Gospel of John and three little letters in the New Testament. And he said, I had a vision, and I saw Jesus risen from the dead, and he revealed some things to me. And so I present to you the drawing back of the curtain where I reveal some things to you about Jesus. That's literally what the apocalypse means is Jesus is coming back one day. And when he comes back, these are the things that he's saying is he is going to justice is going to roll down like a river. All tears are going to be wiped away. The old order of things is going to pass away and there is going to be beauty and friendship and fellowship. And it's going to be amazing. 
Um, we get this idea about the apocalypse from movies and prestige TV shows and stuff like that. But the actual truth of the apocalypse is Jesus is going to come back one day. And when he comes back, he's going to end all of these things that we see in this paragraph that Matt read for us. All the ingratitude, the all the brutality, all of the treacherousness, the conceit, all of this, you know, all all of this, you know, love of money and boastful and pride and abuse, we're going to see the end of all of that. And we're going to see the end of tears and we're going to see the end of pain forever. And so I don't want you to be freaked out regardless of where we are on the timeline of, you know, is it the end times or whatever? I can't answer that question. Nobody knows when the end is coming, but regardless, I don't want you to be freaked out about it. In the meantime, let's continue to check ourselves, not follow people who have these characteristics, but follow Jesus who said, I am gentle and humble in heart and seek to, to be, and to have a life like that. Absolutely right. A a great place to start that off. And Jed, where do we close this out? I'm going to close you out with a story about my mom and the Woodstock music festival. So hang in there with me. Incredible. That's yeah. (laughs) I, I didn't think we were going there. Well, a, a, a buckle up, y'all. So my mom is from upstate New York, and you may know that the Woodstock Music Festival occurred in upstate New York. And so when my mom was in high school, she was a waitress at Howard Johnson's, which I don't think exists anymore. Um, but back in the day, this was a big deal. And one of their uh, signatures were milkshakes. This is one of the things they were known for. And so, you know, she was waitressing there. And, you know, any, any given night, she was, you know, slinging some milkshakes and doing her thing. And it turns out that the Hojos that she was working at um, was on the way, depending on which direction you're going, to or from the Woodstock Music Festival. And so she had an evening of uh, selling and serving an incredible number of milkshakes to attendees from this Woodstock Music Ooh, Festival. People are really hungry. I wonder what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> Now, on the one hand, there's there's two important things to know about this, and it's going to come back to your question. On the one hand, was something of major historical importance going on then? Absolutely. If you're a music fan at all, I mean, the, the Woodstock Music Festival is one of the most important live musical events that uh, certainly of the last hundred years. I think you could argue uh, even longer than that, but certainly of the last hundred years. Absolutely. No question about it. So, yes, there's this momentous, amazing thing that is happening, depending on your perspective, either good or very bad. But either way, significant and momentous. That's that's thing one. That's definitely true. Thing two that's definitely true is you have a job. Your job is to serve milkshakes. That's right. That job hasn't changed. I'm aware that there are a lot of particularly smelly, hungry people in here at the moment, but your job is still to serve milkshakes. That that job has not actually changed in any way. And so she did. What does this have to do with you? It's possible that life is harder right now than it has been at previous times. I don't know if that's really true or not, but it's possible. It's possible that in some sense we are closer to the end of all things than we once were. It's possible. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's possible. But your job hasn't changed. You have a job as a follower of Jesus Christ, and that job has not changed, and that job doesn't change ever. And so we want to be clear on what that job is. And you know what, y'all, because I really I want to drive this point home as a rare treat. 
I'm going to quote the King James to you. Let's do this. So, yeah, get get ready. You know, really put on your Sunday best. You know, really, if you've got like a leather bound Bible that you can have with you in this moment, I think that would really be for for maximum impact. This is Micah six eight. Man, Jed's wearing a tie he, all of a sudden. You you know I am in a three piece suit. I am ready to rock. I've got a flop sweat going. I am you know. Um, <laughs> Because this is actually important, I'm not going to include the super jowly Southern preacher voice, but I'm thinking it loudly okay. as I say this. Micah 6, 8. God hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's your job. That is what's required of you. That is your milkshake that you've got to serve to these smelly, hungry customers. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You may note there are no provisos in that verse. There's no, I mean, unless things get really crazy, in which case all bets are off. Just nope. This is, this is the job and the calling of God's people. The job doesn't change. The circumstances may change. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. And maybe we need to figure out what it means to do justly and love mercy in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. That's fine because adaptation is a part of life, but the call, the job, the mission, the duty to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, that part doesn't change. That's it. That's, that's what you're called to. That's what I'm called to. And here's what I want to encourage you with is I think there's actually a great comfort in that. I think one of the things that is really hard for people, and I think it's one of the downsides of a lot of people that are kind of obsessed with, you know, the end of the world and end times theology and whatnot is they feel unsettled and they feel unsure and they don't know what their place is in the midst of all of it. Here's your place. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. If tomorrow you turn on the news and all the stuff from Revelation turns out to be literally true and there's like the horses that are also scorpions but, you know, have like five heads and whatnot, your job and mine will still be to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. If a literal beast rises out of the sea and there's some lady on top of it and it's a whole thing, still your job and mine will be to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's it, man. That's, that's the call. That's the job. That's the duty. That is also apocalypse or not. That's exactly what this world needs. And you are the right person for that job. You may not know that about yourself, but you are the right person for that job. We need you to live that out. Don't let people pull you off. The folks are coming into Howard Johnson's and they need a milkshake. You are the right person to give them that just merciful, humble milkshake. <laughs> Do your thing and show that love. That was an excellent answer and a beautiful story. Uh, I was really hoping that that was going to be where Jed re- revealed to all of us almost 600 episodes into this podcast that his mother was Janice Joplin. But the Man. the the justice milkshake is is a, a very good second to what I had hoped that story would be. I also uh, like the idea of a milkshake being humble. <laughs> it's like, man, milkshake, you are delicious. You know, I'm I'm doing my best. I don't know if I really pulled it off, but I'm I'm, I'm trying hard. 
But uh, great stuff from from both these guys. I concur with all that. So if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. Take out the song this week. This is the Full House Heroes take on that verse that Jed just read for us. Micah 6 8. It's not the King James version because King James and uh, EDM just don't go together. We don't make the rules, but you can't put those two things <laughs> in the same beaker. You might cause some kind of explosion. So this is. Based on a very safe NIV translation, Micah 6-8. Take out that. Thanks for listening to this. Remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it.